Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to all the guests who have joined us here today. Welcome to those who have joined us online. So glad that you are with us, worshiping with us today. Will you bow your heads and let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for dying and rising so that by believing we might have life in your name. Jesus, you're the good shepherd and you laid down your life for the sheep, for your sheep. And I pray that today you would call them by name. I pray that your sheep would hear your voice and follow you, joyfully worshiping you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to you. We'll try it one more time. We've had good practice, so I expect you to be loud and proud. He is risen. Yes, oh, that's, that's probably the most impressive response we've ever had from this congregation life. So, well done. Yeah, today we are so excited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? It's the heart of our faith. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is worthless. Why? Because the Bible says that Jesus died in our place taking the punishment that we deserved for our sins. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, triumphing victoriously over sin and death, and that's why all who believe in Him have forgiveness for their sins and have eternal life. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then He didn't triumph victoriously over sin and death. You are still in your sins. God's wrath remains on us. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no salvation. The Bible says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have believed in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 17-19. That's what the Bible says. But I love what it says next in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, in reality, the truth is that Jesus has risen. He did triumph over sin and death. Faith in Christ is not in vain. If you confess your sins and put your trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. And you won't perish. You'll have eternal life. As Christians, we're of all people not most to be pitied, but most to be envied. Now, of course, all of this hinges on the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. And people have always been skeptical and not easily convinced. The Scriptures themselves say as much. And that's why the Gospels... And 1 Corinthians 15 takes so much time to record the resurrection appearances, all of these eyewitness accounts, because they want to establish the factual history of the resurrection so that we'll believe in Jesus. Now, there's no doubt that historically Jesus lived. There's no doubt historically that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Yet from the very beginning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has been the heart of the Christian faith and our message. It might have seemed a little bit strange to read from the book of Acts this Resurrection Sunday morning. 
But I wanted to point out right away at the beginning that within five weeks of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, death, and burial, the apostles were preaching that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, that there is forgiveness of sins and salvation in no other name. They're risking their lives to preach this message. Now, they didn't just point to an idea. They pointed to an event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Christianity started in Jerusalem. How did Christianity, with this core belief in the resurrection, begin in the very same city where Jesus was publicly crucified, died, and was buried? How is it that within weeks the disciples go from running away from Jesus, cowering in fear, to boldly and relentlessly preaching this message of a risen Jesus? In the city he was killed, in defiance of the people who killed them, willing to suffer and die. No persecution could silence them. They lived and died proclaiming their faith in a risen Savior. Why? Because it's true. The reality of the resurrection turned them from cowards into world-changing missionaries and willing martyrs. Turn in your Bibles to John 21. John chapter 21. The message for us this morning is believe and follow Jesus. Believe and follow Jesus. Mm. Sorry, I'm going backwards. There we go. The resurrection gives you reason to believe and reason to live. We're going to see that in the two parts of our text today. John chapter 21 takes place in Galilee. Jesus reveals himself yet again to the disciples. The risen Jesus reveals himself to anchor their faith and ours in the resurrection. And then he calls Peter and us, all disciples, to follow him. This chapter splits into two major sections. In the first part, we see that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples while fishing. This gives us reason to believe and it calls us to put our faith in Jesus. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 14, but before we go into our text, I want you to notice the bookends of this section. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus revealed himself. Now skip down in your Bible to verse 14. It says, this was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples. So this section of scripture is about Jesus revealing himself. And like the other resurrection appearances, we're given reason to believe. So look at verse 1 with me now. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. If you're doing the math, that's seven. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught 
nothing. Now we're not told how much time has passed since that first Resurrection Sunday. We know that that the the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread is over, so it's at least ten days. They've left Jerusalem. They're now in Galilee. Just as Jesus told them, they went to Galilee. And they were waiting for Jesus. While they were waiting, they went fishing. This is not aimless activity, let alone apostasy. They'd already met the risen Jesus on at least two occasions. They knew that he planned to meet them here, and while they waited, they fished to earn money. They fished all night, which was the best time to fish because the fish couldn't see the nets and they could be sold fresh the next day at the market. But they didn't catch anything, which is a huge bummer if you're into fishing. Verse 4, Just as dawn was breaking, the sun is just rising. They've been fishing all night. Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is probably because it was still too dark to recognize him. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. (laughs) He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Does that remind you of a similar miracle? When Jesus first called Peter and the disciples. Now in that case, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and there were two boats, not one. And they brought in so many fish that both of those boats were sinking. There were so many fish. And Peter, seeing this, falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus, or Peter recognizes that, that this is the work of a holy God. And Jesus says to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. That was the day they started following Jesus. Now, that memory plus this miracle sparks recognition for John. Look at verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. As usual, John shows quick insight, and Peter shows quick action. Just like when they went to the tomb that first Resurrection Sunday. They got to the tomb, and John looks inside, and he sees the grave clothes lying there, with the face cloth folded up, and he has quick insight knowing that grave robbers would not steal the body, which is worthless, and leave behind the grave clothes and the spices, which were the things of value. And so he believes right there, John 20, verse 8. He had quick insight. Peter didn't stop. He just went right into the tomb. Quick action. Here, Peter jumps into the water and he swims for shore as soon as he realizes it's Jesus. Now, this is not the response of someone who is reluctant to see Jesus or running away from Jesus. This is unbridled joy. He is pumped. He's excited to see Jesus. He swims ashore, leaving the other disciples who came in the boat, dragging the net full of the fish, for they weren't far from land, about a hundred yards off. So he just bails out on everybody else, leaves them to struggle with the fish. Thanks, Peter. Verse 9. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. These details are recorded here so that we will understand this is a miracle. This was one of the many signs that John recorded in his gospel so that we would believe in Jesus. Remember we just read a moment ago, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, verses 30 and 31. So the risen Jesus here does another miracle, another sign to show it's Him, to identify Himself and to encourage faith. Now look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now this might strike us as odd at first, a little confusing. To make sense of this, we need to take what the text says seriously. They knew it was the Lord, yet none of them dared ask him, Who are you? Apparently they want to ask, but they're hesitant. Why? I think with 2,000 years of Christian history, and with the resurrection being an accepted Christian truth and core to our doctrine, we can sometimes take for granted these truths. And it makes it very difficult for us to get into the shoes of the first disciples and to experience things the way that they would have experienced it in the first century at that moment. Could you imagine what it was like sitting across from Jesus in that moment? I think sometimes we think, like, as if we were there, we we would be totally comfortable sitting in the presence of someone who just a few days ago was brutally crucified and died and now is alive and serving us breakfast. Not to mention the fact that Jesus wasn't just resuscitated like Lazarus. He wasn't just, like, back from the dead, the same. This was the resurrected Jesus. He had a resurrected body. They could recognize him. His body was physical, but it was transformed. It was glorious and powerful. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. So despite the irrefutable evidence that they had, having seen and heard him, having investigated his hands and touched his wounds and his side, having, having talked with him and shared meals with him, despite that evidence, the resurrection was still overwhelming to them. And it made them uneasy. And honestly, I think it would for us too, if we were sitting there. So they suppressed their questions, knowing that the one sitting before them could only be Jesus. And what at first seems odd is really an honest and compelling historical account of what they felt. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Jesus invites them to breakfast that he has prepared for them. Look at this. This is the risen Jesus. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is exalted above all others in the universe... And He serves them, as is His way. Jesus meets their tiredness and their hunger after a long night of work with a hot breakfast. 
Jesus is amazing. Amen? Take heart. Jesus knows right where we are and just what we need, and He meets us there. And once again, Jesus has given us an example of humble service to follow. Now look at verse 14. Verse 14 shows that John sees this whole meeting as more evidence of the resurrection. It was a revelation. Now this is the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. That is, to the disciples as a group. He's careful to point out this is after His resurrection. He's... He wants us to see these appearances after Jesus rose. This is evidence for us. And Jesus appeared to the disciples over 40 days. He establishes their faith in the resurrection. He anchors them in this reality. They serve a risen Savior, a risen Lord. And this meeting with Jesus on the shore gives us reason to believe. For the rest of their lives, these men are going to preach that Jesus has risen from the dead. They would suffer imprisonment and beatings and torture and death. Would they do that for something they knew was a lie when they had nothing to gain by it? Or did they do so because they knew with certainty that Jesus had risen from the dead? Here on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus does another miracle, confirming His identity as the Christ, the Son of God. He shares a meal with them. He serves them. I know that's a small detail, but it's so like Jesus. The disciples had seen and heard and talked with and touched and shared meals with the risen Jesus. You have their eyewitness accounts. Have faith in Jesus. Jesus says to each one of us, Believe in Me. John recorded these resurrection appearances so that we would believe in Jesus and have life in His name. Put your faith in Jesus. Receive forgiveness for your sins and eternal life. But there's another reason for these numerous appearances. Jesus was preparing His disciples to be bold witnesses. To be witnesses of the resurrection no matter the cost. And that leads to point two. It was crucial that they knew this with certainty. Point two, Jesus reinstates Peter on the beach. This gives us reason to live, and it calls us to follow Jesus. See this in verses 15 through 25. See, Jesus doesn't just give you reason to believe. He gives you reason to live. He says to each one of us, follow me. Now, before we can walk through this section, we need to go back to the night that Jesus was arrested when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times. Peter boasted that night that he would follow Jesus in front of all the other disciples, that he he would stay true to Jesus above and beyond all the others, saying this, Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, 33. But as predicted, Peter denied Jesus three times. We read this in Luke. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. A powerful moment. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Luke twenty-two sixty to 62 What's going to become of Peter? Jesus had already met Peter privately. We know this from Luke 24 and from 1 Corinthians 15. 
And though we don't know the details of that meeting or what was said, it seems that that was the time that Peter was forgiven and reconciled to Jesus. That's why Peter is glad to see Jesus, John 20, 20. It's why he isn't reluctant but excited to be with Jesus and jumps in to the water. His actions show that Peter has already returned to Jesus in faith and been forgiven. You don't go from such great failure to such great joy in the presence of Jesus without first being reconciled to Jesus. And there's a lesson here for us. It's unconfessed sin in our lives that weighs heavy on us and that keeps a barrier between us and Jesus. Unconfessed sin keeps us from wanting to spend time in Jesus' presence, in prayer, in Bible study, in worship. When we sin as Christians, and we all do, the way forward is not to ignore sin, pretending that it didn't happen. It's not to try to make up for it by being extra good. The way forward isn't pretending, it's not penance, it's confession. Seeking forgiveness. When we confess, He forgives and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Our relationship with God is restored and we walk by faith again. So Peter's already been reconciled with Jesus, but what about Peter's leadership in ministry? He publicly denied Jesus three times. With such a colossal failure, is Peter now tainted forever? Or can Jesus turn failure into faithfulness? He can, and he does. Peter's reconciled, and now he's reinstated. Jesus publicly reinstates and commissions Peter. And the emphasis in this second half of this chapter is on following Jesus. Jesus calls Peter to ministry and martyrdom, and he says, follow me. We see that in verses 15 through 19. Look at verse 15. When they finished breakfast, you need to stop here for a minute. Jesus has cooked breakfast for them over a charcoal fire. Verse 9. The only other place that this word for a charcoal fire is used in the New Testament is John 18.18. It's the exact same kind of fire around which Peter denied Jesus. Jesus just did a miracle that reminded Peter of when Jesus called him to be his disciple and to be a fisher of men. Now they finished breakfast and they're sitting around a charcoal fire that reminded Peter of denying Jesus. And that's the moment when Jesus chooses to reinstate Peter. This is not an accident. Jesus has arranged things this way. And I can't help but wonder what's going through Peter's mind. Verse 15, When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these disciples, these other disciples? That question probes to the depths of Peter's heart. Watch, how care- watch carefully how Peter answers here. After boasting that he's going to stay true, though they all fall away, he does not answer based on the relative strength of his love compared to theirs. He doesn't repeat his mistake and say, Yes, Lord, I love you more than them. (laughs) I love you more than they do. He's learning a lesson here. Instead, he simply appeals to Jesus' knowledge. Verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus accepts this truth and he commissions him saying, Feed my lambs. 
Now, this exchange happens three times. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, preachers have made a big deal out of the fact that there are two different words for love here, agape and phileo. But this approach is mistaken. In John's writing style, he commonly uses synonyms for variation without any change in meaning whatsoever. In this passage alone, there are four word pairs. There's two words for love, two words for know, two words for tend, and two words for sheep. We don't make a big deal about any of the other synonyms. Moreover, both words for love have been used to describe God's love and Jesus' love. And agape love is not always used in, in a positive sense, in some kind of divine, unconditional sense. So, for example, Demas, in love, in agape, with the world, abandons Paul and the ministry. Okay? Context is king. Peter is not grieved here because Jesus asks him, Do you phileo me? The text tells us he's grieved because Jesus asks him the same question three times. Do you love me? Just as Peter disowned Jesus three times, Jesus requires this confession three times in a powerful restatement of him to ministry. Jesus officially reinstates Peter to service, asking him three times, do you love me? And commanding him three times to tend my sheep. The repetition is explained by Peter's three denials. But repeating something three times in Scripture is often also used for emphasis, like the the angels who say, Holy, holy, holy. Jesus emphasizes he wants all Peter's love. He wants his whole heart. He wants to be first in Peter's heart. He wants complete devotion, total commitment. And his love for Jesus needs to lead him to shepherd his flock. See, following and serving Jesus... It's driven by your love for Jesus, not obligation. You will never follow and serve Jesus faithfully unless Christ's love compels you to forget yourself and follow Him at any cost. We love because He first loved us. It's love that motivates our ministry. Now, this part of the conversation happens with the other disciples sitting there. Just as Peter's denial was public, his reinstatement also happens in a public setting. This was necessary for both Peter and the others. Others needed to know that Peter was restored in order to be able to trust and follow his leadership. Peter needed this public restoration to be able to carry out his role with confidence. For all of Peter's personal failures, Jesus' love for him and call on his life remained. 
And Jesus didn't arrange these circumstances or ask these questions to inflict pain, but to heal it. He did so that Peter could love and serve him without the shame and doubt of that past failure accusing him for the rest of his life. And Jesus wants to do that for each of us. He forgives our sins, he heals our past mistakes, and he calls us to serve him. Thank God that when we fail, even fail miserably, Jesus can restore us to faith and faithfulness. Amen? There's tremendous encouragement here for us when we sin. Well, that night in the upper room, Jesus told Peter, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers, Luke 22. See, when Satan comes and he grinds us like wheat, Jesus picks up the pile left behind and he blows away the chaff from our lives. What Satan intends to destroy us, Jesus uses to sanctify us. Jesus doesn't focus on the husks of our failures, but on the kernel of faith that is revealed and strengthened by them. But Jesus has more to say. Look at verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Stretching out your hands commonly referred to crucifixion. You might ask, well, why does that come before people leading him where he doesn't want to go? It's because they would first tie you to the crossbeam and then make you carry it on your shoulders and neck and lead you out to your death, to crucifixion, where you didn't want to go. Jesus is predicting that Peter is going to suffer and die for God's glory by crucifixion. Now, for a believer to suffer and die for their faith is not unusual. It is in America, but not historically. What's remarkable is that Peter served Jesus for another 30 years with this prediction hanging over him. By the time John's Gospel was written, this prediction had come true. Peter glorified God as a martyr, probably in Rome under Emperor Nero. Tradition says he was crucified upside down. That fact we can't confirm. So Jesus commands Peter three times to tend his sheep. He tells him he's going to be crucified. And then he says, follow me. The central theme here. Jesus offers him a choice by commanding him to follow. After denying Jesus in order to save his own life, will Peter now follow Jesus knowing that it will certainly cost him his life? Will Peter follow Jesus and fulfill the promise to follow him to death? John 13, 36-38. That earlier promise was based on his arrogance and his self-reliance, also on a faulty understanding of the Messiah and how he would bring about his kingdom. 
Peter will follow, but now he follows fully aware of his own weakness and frailty. He follows with an understanding of the power of God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He follows by faith in the power of the Spirit. Peter and the other disciples, they all abandoned Jesus that night. All of them. And they all learned a valuable lesson. The lesson is that good intentions and willpower are not sufficient to follow Jesus. Peter was just the most brash. He was always the the most brash. He he made the strongest boast that night, but they all said, I'm not going to fall away. All of them. He was just the most brash about it. Peter was the one who took the sword and sliced off Malchus's ear. But physical courage is not enough. It was Peter, spirit willing but flesh weak, who denied Peter three times that night. The point is that any potential that Peter has for service depends not only on being forgiven by Jesus and being reinstated by Jesus, but depending on Jesus. To follow Jesus, they're going to need to rely on the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. It's why Jesus says to them, wait, don't leave until you've received the Holy Spirit. Don't go on your mission until then. It's why Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, because then you'll receive the Holy Spirit, John 16, 7. It's in the Spirit that they preach the Word of God with boldness, Acts 4, 8 and 31. In our strength, in our own strength, the mission to make disciples of our children and family and neighbors and nations is impossible. But in Christ, by the Spirit, it's possible. The miracle catch that wasn't just a powerful reminder of their calling, their mission to be fishers of men, It's a powerful picture of how that mission is accomplished in God's power. And the goal of all believers should be to glorify God by their life and death. Our aim is just to live our life by faith, to serve Christ faithfully without compromise no matter what, surrendering to whatever end, whatever God has planned for us. Now, the last part of this chapter is a strong call for each one of us to follow Jesus. At some point, it seems that that Peter and Jesus go for a walk on the beach, and John is following close behind, because, verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to Jesus, and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? So Peter and Jesus are walking down the beach and John is following close behind within earshot because he hears what they say, verses 23 to 24. And when Peter sees John, he says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? That's a natural question, I think. I mean, Jesus just tells John, you love and serve me, right? You, love, you serve me out of love for me and you're going to be crucified for me. And Peter says, what's your plan for him? What's going to be expected of him? Is he going to face the same perils as an apostle? Is he going to be killed for his faith as I am? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus gives him a mild rebuke here, basically saying, It's none of your business what I have planned for John. 
That's not your concern. You follow me. Be concerned about your own faithfulness. Peter shouldn't be comparing his lot with his friends. Rather, his main concern should be faithfully following Jesus, faithfully trusting and obeying the Lord, regardless of what's required of other people. Peter's responsibility and ours is to follow Jesus, not worrying or comparing ourselves to others and what God's divine destiny is for them. We accept God's will for us and focus on following Christ faithfully ourselves. Look at Peter and John. Neither is better. Neither is belittled. Both are significant. One is called to strategic pastoral ministry and martyrdom. That's Peter. John is called to a long-term ministry and strategic witness in writing several books. No one would say that John had a greater ministry than Peter because he lived longer. Each one of them fulfilled their unique calling. Each one of them glorified God accordingly. And we must do the same. Jesus emphasizes here our own discipleship and submission to God's will. This teaching prepares the church to be faithful in every age. We don't live in the first century persecution. We don't live in the time of the Reformation. We live today, in this time in history, with our own unique challenges. As individuals and as a church, Jesus says, You follow me. Peter's learning a powerful lesson here, not to compare himself to other disciples. We always lose when we compare ourselves to other disciples. Either we think their situation and their gifts and their lot in life is better than ours, and we get jealous, bitter, discouraged, or we think our situation and gifts and lot in life is better. And so we get proud, arrogant, boastful, self-righteous, or maybe apathetic. It doesn't matter how we come out in the comparison. It's lose-lose. We fall in a ditch either way, sinning on either side. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, on what He has done for you, on the gifts that He has given to you, on the calling that He has for you. Each one of us is called to trust and obey Jesus, to be faithful wherever we are and whatever the Lord has given us to do. We trust and obey. We shouldn't say, why did you give me this husband or this wife? Why do they have such good kids? Why are they so well off? Why do I have health problems? How come they're so talented and successful? Why am I struggling in this way and they're not struggling in this way? Why is this my ministry and they get to have that ministry? And on and on. We all need to hear these words from Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. God has planned your days and He's weaving them together for your good and His glory. Jesus says to each of us, You follow me. The resurrection gives you reason to believe. Jesus suffered, died, and He rose victorious. 
so that all who believe in Him would be forgiven and have eternal life. So believe in Him. Have faith in Him. But the resurrection also gives us reason to live. Reason to live. Jesus takes sinners like Peter and like us. He forgives us. He welcomes us. He he gives us purpose and He sends us out to glorify Him. Our faith in Jesus should lead us to following Jesus. And we celebrate Christ's victory over sin and death today. Amen? Amen. We celebrate our salvation today. Amen? Amen? And out of love for Him, we live for Him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank You and we praise You for what You did for us. Thank You and praise You for how You work in our lives. Lord, we ask and pray that You would help us to be faithful no matter what. Lord Jesus, we ask and pray that You'd seal these truths on our hearts. Lord, help us to follow You. Lord, I pray for any who are here, who are listening online, who have never repented of their sins and put their faith in You for salvation. God, would You call Your sheep by name? Would You draw them to Jesus Christ right now in repentance and faith? Would You save them, Lord? Lord, as we spend the rest of this service worshiping You, we ask and pray that You'd be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.